April and May of 1992, six people were tragically killed in three Midwestern states. The victims were all working in specialty shops near Interstate 70 and Interstate 35 when they were shot in the back of the head, execution style. Notably, the killer only robbed the stores of small amounts of money and often left the other cash behind. Initially, no one realized the connection between the murders, assuming they were all simply failed robberies. However, after various police departments began sharing information, they identified similarities amongst the cases. The department started working together, and eventually, ballistics tests confirmed the same firearm and ammunition had been used in all of the shootings. It's been more than 30 years since the I-70 serial killer began his reign of terror, and investigators are still searching for the man responsible. Hey everyone, welcome back to Detective Perspective. My name is Derek Lavasser. I'm a licensed private investigator and former police detective. Each week I'll be covering an unsolved case in story format. I'll then give you my perspective on the investigation and provide contact information for the individuals or organizations connected to the case so that if you have any tips, you can contact them directly and maybe you can help solve a case. And as always, if you're someone who's interested in true crime, specifically unsolved cases, and you would like to hear my opinion on those investigations, please consider subscribing, whether you're watching on YouTube or listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever platform you use. Okay, so tonight's episode is our first multiple murder investigation. Uh, normally on Detective Perspective, based on how we're doing these episodes, it's going to be one specific case. And the reason being is when I came up with this show, I wanted to have an episode where you could get in your car or on your lunch break and over an hour or less, you could get from start to finish of an entire investigation. So when it comes to these large cases where there's multiple murders involved and it, and it could be a potential serial killer, normally we're not going to be able to cover that here with the format that I'm trying to accomplish. However, I want to keep a diversified catalog as far as what we're doing uh, the types of cases we're doing, and even in some situations doing investigations like this where it does involve multiple victims and what appears to be one offender. So we're going to go through these cases tonight, and I'm really interested to get your feedback on them based on how I cover it. Um, I want to hear if you're able to follow everything that I'm going through because obviously they're going to be abbreviated versions at a little faster rate. But I'm wondering if you're still finding it consumable and if it's something you'd like to see in the future. Again, not something we're going to do all the time, but if this is something that interests you, weigh down in the comments below if you're watching on YouTube or, or give it a rating on one of the podcast platforms. Leave a five-star review, but you can give a negative feedback if you want. <laughs> but, but either way, positive or negative feedback, I'm going to be looking at it all. It'd be greatly appreciated. This is a fascinating investigation. I really think you guys are going to find a lot in this. So without further ado, let's dive right into it. On April 8th, 1992, between 1.30 and 2.15 p.m., a district manager from the Payless Shoe Source attempted to call a store near I-70 
on Pendleton Pike in Indianapolis, Indiana. However, there was no response to their repeated calls. Concerned, the manager reached out to a gas station nearby and asked them to check on the only worker that day, 26-year-old Robin Fuldauer. A gas station employee went to the payless and found the cash register drawer open. Alarmed, she called the police who arrived at 2.21 p.m. Officers discovered Robin in the back storage room. She had been shot in the back of the head. The police immediately launched an investigation. Now, unfortunately, the store did not have security cameras. However, according to the courier and the press, police were able to determine that a small amount of cash was taken from the cash register and that the killer fled through the rear door. The police interviewed nearby business employees to ask if they'd seen anything. The manager of the paint store across from the Payless said before the shooting occurred, he observed a strange man in a green coat walking west on Pendleton Pike. The manager believed he might be a hitchhiker because he appeared disheveled as if he slept in his clothes. Additionally, he carried a large bag, approximately three feet in length. The man walked around the paint store several times before sitting on a concrete curb. He remained there for about 30 to 40 minutes, going through his bag and staring at the Payless store. According to the manager, the man seemed to be talking to himself and giggling. Just before 2 p.m., the manager looked outside and saw the man was gone. A few minutes later, the manager spotted him attempting to hitch a ride near the northbound lanes of the interstate. He didn't appear to be in a hurry, and moments later, the manager heard police sirens. Now, as we sit here today, it's believed that the strange man wearing the green coat is the person responsible for killing Robin. And while the Indianapolis police continued their investigation, two more women were tragically killed, this time over 600 miles away in Wichita, Kansas. On April 11th, at around 7.30 p.m., a man called the Wichita police and reported seeing a gunman inside the LaBride D'Elegance bridal shop approximately an hour earlier. The shop was located on East Kellogg Street, a main street just before the turnpike entrance to I-35, which isn't too far from I-70. The man explained that he went to the shop at around 6.30 p.m., 30 minutes after closing time, to pick up a cummerbund. The shop's two female employees agreed to stay late so that he could pick up the item before they left. Inside, the customer didn't find any employees, only an armed gunman. The gunman tried to lead the customer into the back room, but the customer sensed something was wrong. According to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, they had a heated exchange of words before the customer quickly left and got into his car. He waited an hour before calling the police because he felt confused and scared. He said he didn't know what had happened to the employees inside the store, and he really didn't know what to do. Police arrived at the bridal shop and discovered the front door unlocked with the keys still in it. In the back room, they found two women. 32-year-old shop owner Patricia Majors, who also went by Trish, and Patricia Smith, a 23-year-old employee. Both had been shot in the back of the head. Police realized that a small amount of money was missing from the cash register, along with some personal items. Because the keys were still in the door, officers believed that when the killer arrived, one of the employees mistakenly let them in, thinking they were the male customer coming to buy the cummerbund. Once the gunman was inside, he directed the women to the back room where they were killed. When the killer was leaving the area, that's when he ran into the male customer. Now, this is the only case involving two victims. Later, when authorities linked these murders to the I-70 serial killer, they theorized that one of the women was already in the back room when the gunman arrived, leading him to believe that only one woman was working. The male customer later helped authorities create a composite sketch of the killer. According to the customer, 
The killer was a white male, aged 22 to 32, with a slight build, standing around 5'7", and weighing approximately 150 pounds. He had short, dull red hair and beard stubble, wearing a brown jacket and dark pants. The sketch was made public on April 20th. One week later, the I-70 killer struck again, this time 600 miles away in Terre Haute, Indiana. On April 27th, at approximately 4.15 p.m., a customer went into Sylvia Ceramics, a store in a strip mall along I-70 in Terre Haute. Upon entering, they discovered the body of 40-year-old Michael McCown, who managed the ceramics store owned by his mother. Michael had been fatally shot in the back of the head. KMOV reported that after police arrived on scene, they determined that the killer, quote, crept into the store while Michael was busy stocking shelves. He never had a chance to see the killer as his back was turned toward the entrance. Unlike the previous murders, no money was taken from the cash register. Approximately $50 was left untouched. Instead, Michael's wallet was missing, although he still had around $15 in his pocket. Notably, Michael's the sole male victim of the I-70 killer. Police later speculated that the killer may have mistaken Michael for a woman, given that they only saw his back. You see, Michael had long brown hair and a ponytail and wore an earring. Additionally, the store's name, Sylvia Ceramics, might have led the killer to assume a female employee would be present. While the Terre Haute police were looking into Michael's murder, the gunman traveled approximately 200 miles west to St. Charles, Missouri, situated outside of St. Louis. On May 3rd, just after 2.30 p.m., customers entered the Boot Village in Bogey Hill Plaza, a busy shopping center south of I-70 in St. Charles. The store was deserted, so the customers looked in the back office to see if an employee was there. That's when they discovered the lifeless body of 24-year-old Nancy Kitzmiller. She, too, had been shot in the back of the head, and when police arrived, they determined a small amount of money was missing from the cash register. While talking to people in the shopping center, police learned that shortly before 2.30 p.m., a shopper had seen Nancy assisting a customer. This customer was described as a white male of medium height with dull red hair. Just after 2.30 p.m., different customers showed up and found Nancy dead. Four days later, the same assailant struck again, this time more than 200 miles away in Raytown, Missouri, just outside of Kansas City. On May 7th, at approximately 6.15 p.m., the owner of a video store located in a shopping center along I-70 in Raytown witnessed a man wearing a gray sports coat enter the store of many colors, which was owned by 37-year-old Sarah Blessing. According to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, not long after, the video store owner heard a loud noise that he thought was a gunshot. He quickly opened his door and observed the same man he had seen entering the store moments ago, exiting, turning the corner, and disappearing from sight. He stated that he, quote, looked cool and calm, like he didn't have a care. He then ran over to Sarah's store, where he discovered her body. Like the other victims, she had suffered a gunshot wound to the back of the head. After the police arrived, it became evident that only a small amount of money had been taken from the cash register. The police interviewed the video store owner, who mentioned that earlier in the afternoon, he had noticed the gunman lingering around the shopping center, talking to himself. Now, at this point in the story, this is the second time we've heard of this type of behavior from the offender. So, the first time you hear it, you could dismiss it as maybe a witness being wrong. Now that we've heard it a second time from someone completely different, I think it's safe to say it's accurate. And I think it speaks to the, to the profile of this offender, which is interesting because as we go through the story, 
it doesn't become a big part of the narrative for law enforcement as far as how to identify this offender, who they might be looking for, which I find very interesting. But we're going to continue through the story and we're going to we're going to double back to this at the end because I do think this could speak to the type of person we're looking for and maybe it may trigger something for someone out there. Additionally, a grocery store clerk informed the police that he had been in the vicinity collecting shopping carts in the parking lot when the shooting occurred. He witnessed the gunman leaving the store, climbing a hill toward I-70 and vanishing from sight. At this point, authorities in Missouri, Indiana, and Kansas suspected a serial killer might be at large. All six murders shared common elements. The victims worked in small shops near the interstate, typically with just one or two employees and little cash. Additionally, the murders occurred in broad daylight and the victims were all shot in the back of the head. The gunman usually took a small amount of money and never had an apparent getaway vehicle. Furthermore, five of the six victims were women with brown hair and like I said earlier, it's likely that the killer mistook Michael McCown for a woman because he had long hair with an earring. According to Fox 2 Now, Police theorized the killer stopped along the interstate and targeted women working alone in these small, financially modest shops. The killer would manipulate the victims into believing that they were safe if they followed his instructions, such as going to the back of the store with him. Once they were back there, the killer would shoot the victims in the head. He'd then steal a small amount of money and flee the area. Due to the striking similarities, ballistics testing was conducted. Results confirmed that the same 22 caliber pistol and ammunition was used in each murder. However, further details about these results were not disclosed to the public for several years. In their efforts to apprehend the killer, police collected hotel records from the route he likely took and entered them into a computer database. They also checked toll booth records, license plates, and conducted traffic stops. All of this gave police a list of 67,000 potential suspects. Despite these extensive efforts, law enforcement was unable to identify the killer and the case would eventually go cold. Now, I want to take a second here and stop because obviously law enforcement put a lot of effort into this, and I want to commend them for that. And I was going to hit on this earlier, but I think it's a good spot to hit on it now. With cases not only this extensive, but even minor cases, you know, it's not always going to be obvious who the offender is. There's not always going to be that one witness who observed the killer leaving the scene of the crime. In some situations, there'll be no witnesses, and the way you'll actually catch the person is their behavior before or after the incident, more so before. And what I mean by that is, let's say you have a brief description of a blue jacket, brown jeans, and, you know, a tan hat. Well, after the incident, more than likely that person's going to go into hiding. But maybe days before that incident, They were wearing the same clothing while shopping at a laundromat or while picking up some groceries. So it's not only the responsibility of the investigators to talk to people who were there immediately before and after the incident, but also field calls and and ask questions to people from the weeks leading up to the incident. Because as they go through their dispatch logs, they may find a person from a previous incident matching the description of their suspect. And again, it may not even be a crime that that person was committing. For all we know, it could be a car accident where the person who was driving one of the vehicles was wearing that same green jacket, brown jeans, and tan hat. And that might be the key that unlocks the case. 
Now in 2012, the police provided an update on the case's 20th anniversary, stating that it was still under investigation. They also shared new information in the hope of generating leads. It was revealed that based on ballistic evidence and witness statements, the murder weapon was a 22 caliber gun, most likely an Irma ET-22, although an Intratech Scorpion couldn't be ruled out. Now the ammunition used was CCI-22 caliber long rifle, copper-clad lead bullets. One detective explained to KMOV4 that the Irma ET-22 pistol was a historical remake of an old German Navy gun easily recognizable by its long barrel and wooden forestock. The barrel measured almost a foot in length, making it challenging to conceal. The detective added, quote, This was an unusual gun. He was probably a collector of weapons. You know, someone who probably had several. You'd remember this gun. Police further revealed that in every murder, investigators discovered two substances on the bullet casings, corundum and a red material consistent with Rogue. According to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, these substances are commonly used for industrial grinding, buffing, and polishing of various items, including firearms and ammunition. Police noted that it's possible the killer either lived or worked in a place where grinding or polishing took place. Now, I know police are saying here that this individual could have lived or worked in a place where grinding and polishing took place. Yeah, and that's possible. I get it. But it could also be as simple as this person was a hobbyist when it came to guns and polished his own weapons. And because he was in an area where he was loading up the firearm and loading up the ammunition in that same location where he would also polish his firearms, those substances may have transferred onto the bullet casings while he was packing it up. It could be that simple. The reason I bring this up is I don't think law enforcement did this, but I would hate to only focus on individuals who lived or worked near an area where grinding and polishing took place because they could miss their guy. Now, it was reported that FBI profilers had reviewed the case twice and determined the killer was possibly from the Indianapolis area and was living there in 1992. Profilers further believed that robbery was not the motive in the murders. This led police to theorize that the perpetrator killed simply for the thrill. One detective told KMBC, quote, Killing was the motivation, no doubt in my mind. He added, quote, It started and ended very quickly. It just happened in such a short period of time, and he seemed to pick his victims very carefully. Something set him off. I want to weigh in here, because I completely agree. Something did set him off. And I'll also say he may not have only selected these women because of their level of vulnerability. They may have also reminded him of someone, someone who hurt him in the past. And I'll elaborate on that more during my perspective. Police also said they suspected the killer might have a job involving travel, which would explain why he was so familiar with I-70 and I-35. They noted the travel seemed to be purposeful as it involved back and forth trips. Another theory is that the killer had ties to military bases, as several murders occurred near such installations. Now, this is a really interesting theory, and we've seen this play out before in other cases. I covered a case in Hawaii, the Honolulu Strangler, and for many years, um, they thought that the offender could also be someone who was involved in the military. This gives them an opportunity while they're there for a short period of time to conduct the, whatever crimes they're conducting, and then all of a sudden the murders or whatever they're doing will stop, and they can't explain why. And if they're able to identify the person, usually they'll find that this person was then moved to, to another base. Um, and the Honolulu Strangler, not to go too far off here, we came to the conclusion that more than likely the person wasn't from a, a military base, but was from an airport, which 
it was also in line with a similar thing. They were taking this this similar travel route back and forth to the airport, and uh, they were moving to different locations throughout the country, which explained why there were drops in the incidents at certain times. Now, despite these new details being publicized, the case continued to go unsolved. In October of 2021, the police were hoping to bring in new information with an age-enhanced sketch of the suspect, who they believed was now between 52 and 70 years old, possibly with gray hair. While this sketch generated numerous tips, none led to a breakthrough in the case. In early November, a detective gave an update to WTHR stating, quote, every case has some piece of evidence that can possibly yield a DNA sample that's going to be valuable for us to use. He said police had been carefully reviewing all evidence and determining which items to send for testing at a private lab. Now, this is a sad story we hear way too often and part of the reason that Stephanie and I started Criminal Coffee. Uh, we understand that there's so many cases out there that has pieces of evidence, pieces that were seized well before DNA technology was where it is today. And first off, you have to have a team go through all of that, like like the detective said. But then you got to pay for it because the state labs are so backed up that they're more so focusing on the newer stuff and, and doing the older stuff when they can. We found that there's thousands of, of rape kits out there that haven't even been tested yet. It's absolutely egregious. We need more lab testing and we need more funding for it. And that's why we have these unfortunate situations where detectives are having to go through all the evidence and pick the items that they think they think might be the most useful and might contain DNA. How are they so really supposed to know that? In a perfect utopian world, we would just send everything and test everything. But when dollars are attached to each item, detectives are forced with a difficult decision to choose which items make it and which items don't. And I can tell you, just testing a piece of hair, depending on where you send it, could be anywhere from three to $5,000. That's the, that's the battle we're dealing with right now. It has to get better, not only for this case, but all cases. Now, during the same month, all agencies involved in the I-70 serial killer investigation case met with the FBI and ATF to go through thousands of case files. In addition to talking about the six murders from Kansas, Missouri, and Indiana, authorities were also examining three similar shootings that occurred in Texas back in 1993 and 1994. In those three shootings, the victims were all dark-haired women who worked alone in small stores along the interstate. They all had been shot in the back of the head as well. Now, it is important to note that the firearm used in the Texas cases differ from the one used in the other six killings, and because of this, these cases have not been officially linked together, but let's break down these cases a little more. On September 25, 1993, 51-year-old Mary Ann Glasscock was shot and killed at her store, Emporium Antiques, located near I-30 in Fort Worth, Texas. Days later, on November 1st, 22-year-old Amy Vess was killed at the Dancer's Closet apparel store in Arlington, Texas. And on January 15, 1994, 35-year-old Vicki Webb was shot while working at Alternatives Gift Shop in Houston, Texas. She actually survived the shooting. The Indianapolis Star reported that in the late morning hours, a male customer came into the Alternative Shop. He talked to Vicki as he browsed the store. After around 20 minutes, the man asked to see a picture frame. Vicky left her spot behind the counter and reached for the frame. As she turned to go back behind the counter, the man shot her in the head. Vicky never saw the gun or the man approaching from behind. She only heard the single pop before she fell to the floor. Though Vicky remained conscious, she couldn't move. 
She later found out she'd been paralyzed. Fearing for her life, Vicky played dead as the man jumped over and proceeded to go through the cash register. He then entered the store room at the rear of the store, filled with boxes and supplies. The man left the store for a short time, then went back inside. He turned Vicky over, dragged her behind the counter, and pressed the gun against her forehead and pulled the trigger. The gun misfired, and the man laughed. Then he heard noises coming from the neighboring real estate business, so he left the store again and never returned. Approximately 15 minutes later, a couple arrived at the shop, and Vicky managed to quietly ask for help. She was rushed to the hospital where doctors found a bullet lodged at the bottom of her skull. Following several months of rehabilitation, Vicky regained the ability to walk. However, a bullet and a fragment of bone remained in her spinal column. Vicky told detectives that the man who shot her was roughly 5'8", thin, with a quote, weathered look. She was shown a sketch of the I-70 killer and noted a resemblance. Now, although none of the shootings in Texas have definitively been connected to the I-70 killer, it is important to note that law enforcement holds the belief that there is a chance that maybe the same man is responsible. By the end of 2021, authorities investigating the I-70 killer had formed a task force. And in January of 2022, KMOV reported that the task force was investigating yet another murder as a potential link to the serial killer. This case occurred on November 30th, 2001, when 31-year-old Billy Brosman was killed during a robbery at a liquor store in Terre Haute, Indiana, just seven blocks from where Michael McCowan was murdered in 1992. Surveillance footage from the store showed a gunman approach the store counter and demand money from the cash register. After taking the cash, the gunman forced Billy to the back of the store. The gunman shot Billy, then calmly walked out of the business. Notably, the bullets used in the incident did not match those from any of the other shootings. And in January of 2022, the police informed KMOV that they had identified a person of interest in Billy's case. However, this individual was not in custody. Police further said that the man responsible for Billy's murder is considered a suspect in the I-70 serial killings. Now, unfortunately, this is the last update we have. The task force is still searching for the person responsible for shooting Robin Fuldauer, Patricia Smith, Patricia Majors, Michael McCown, Nancy Kitzmiller, Sarah Blessing, Mary Glasscock, Amy Vess, and Vicki Webb. All right, so here we are. Seems like everybody's working this case. You have local authorities, state authorities, federal authorities, including the FBI, ATF. There are a lot of people working this case, and I have no problem admitting people with uh, a lot more experience and knowledge in these particular cases than I have. So I'm just going to weigh in on it as best as I can, but I do feel like with this particular scenario, there's some good people working on it, and if, if something can be found, it will be found. That's at least my hope. I do think it's very promising that the task force has been established because what we could have here is something similar that we had with the Gilgo Beach murders. You know, you have all of this information spanning multiple states and what usually is done when these task force are, are established is all of the information, whether it's in a computer or on paper, whatever it is, everything's digitized. It's put into order chronologically by state and these packets are created, these big packets. Sometimes they can be multiple folders. All the photos, all the information, all the witness statements, all the dispatch logs are there and accessible for everybody who is on the task force. And this isn't just the main points. This should include everything. Like I said, traffic stops, witness statements from weeks earlier. Remember I talked about that 
in the beginning of this episode where I said, you know, it shouldn't be just the stuff directly connected to the to the actual crimes. It should be maybe traffic stops or other incidences that don't appear on the surface to be connected, but might have something to do with it. And the reason I say that is because, and I think I've said it before on here, that's what happened with Gilgo. It was a different incident that occurred to one of the victims days earlier where the suspect uh, was identified. His vehicle was identified. So by having this new team of, of investigators with a fresh set of eyes and a new perspective, they may go through something that's been looked at two or three times and find something in that that triggers something else that gets the ball rolling. And all of a sudden, you had a traffic stop that was conducted two weeks earlier in Kansas that somehow connects to one of your cases in Texas. Just by that one traffic stop where a police officer took good notes and made sure they put a detailed report in the dispatch log. Again, a lot of qualified people working this, but I'm going to take a shot at it. Why not? I said earlier in the episode that this individual was displaying some behavior that may suggest he has some type of mental illness, maybe schizophrenia, something like that. And some of what law enforcement said could be true. Maybe he was someone who traveled a lot or was in a job or an occupation where he had to travel for work along I-70. But when I said earlier that these victims might not only be because of the positions they were in, but maybe they reminded of someone, my theory would be that maybe this guy was a normal guy at one point, just a middle class, normal working guy, nine to five every day, like, like most people. And maybe he had a relationship with a woman who had brown hair, who, in his opinion, uh, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes here for anyone who's not watching on YouTube, ruined his life. Maybe it was a significant other who left him for whatever reason, and he couldn't get over it. And he snapped. And, and maybe this led to a mental breakdown. And his sole goal was to hurt women who reminded him of this particular woman. That could be the case. And that's where it really comes down to, I was thinking, we really got to start looking at um, disturbance calls back in that, that time period for people who, maybe a husband and wife, maybe a boyfriend and girlfriend, where the male subject in these incidences, where maybe there wasn't an official report, but just a dispatch log, matched the description of our shooter. Again, it's a long shot, but you never know. And we also hit in this episode about DNA evidence. As we know, the offender was walking all over these stores, having interactions with new, multiple items, having physical interactions with the victims themselves. So I'm sure there's a lot of evidence that was collected over the years that can now be tested for DNA using the latest science and technology. The, the hard part, as I already said earlier, is picking the right items. And hopefully, if they're lucky enough and they pick some items that end up yielding some type of DNA profile, they can enter it into the databases and hopefully this offender has a DNA profile that's been entered in CODIS or maybe entered in an ancestral profile of one of these databases where either the offender or a, a, a relative of the offender can be identified and that could get us going in the right case just like we had in the Golden State Killer case in California. And the last thing I want to discuss is this sketch that we have. Yes, it's important and hopefully it's good. But if these cases that we've discussed have taught us anything, sometimes even though the witnesses have the best intentions, they don't have the best memories and they aren't able to articulate what they saw accurately. We saw it in Delphi. We had one sketch that was spot on and one that looked more like me than the actual or I should say the alleged killer. So although it is a tool we have to use, I don't think we should be putting all of our eggs in that one basket 
And I think what we really have to go off of is the descriptions given by multiple witnesses in multiple different environments and multiple locations who say that this man was around 5'7", 5'8", 150, 160 pounds with dull red hair at the time. That's really all you have. You, you, you would think at this point this person would have gray hair, but I would be more focused on what they looked like back then and identifying another similar call, like I said, that may link up to a certain person who matches that description, who wasn't identified at the time when the report was taken, but can be identified now and is hopefully still alive so you can go and speak with them. And that's going to do it for us on this case. I know we discussed a lot. I don't know how long this episode's going to be. I, I went through it briefly. We didn't get into any of the investigations too in-depth, but I do think we did each one of them justice. And I'm hoping that we have something in this. I'm really optimistic about this case. I think with this new task force and, again, all the new technology and science we have available, all these cases are up for grabs and any of them have the potential to be solved. And I think just highlighting them, making you aware of them, maybe there's something we said in this episode that triggers something for you, or maybe it's just a matter of knowing what's going on so that hopefully when we get some good breaking news that this case has been solved, you'll be aware of the facts behind it. But as always, we want to leave you with something here just in case. If anyone has information, you should call the Crime Stoppers of Central Indiana at 317-262-TIPS. And TIPS is 8477. Remember, there is a $25,000 reward available. As always, I want to thank you guys for joining me here on Detective Perspective. Everyone be safe out there. I'll see you soon. 